dancing, I was singing, but my story is locked in my soul. Laugh to your tunes, cry for the moon. My silence sings loudest of all. My silence sings loudest of all. Not for the king, nor the sorrow in his eyes, nor for your country, sovereign, no. Not even for the crown that Parliament despise, just for my raven queen. Welcome to another very special episode of Dead Men Talk. And this one really will delves back into almost my roots, really, what kind of got me into writing, because everybody knows who's listened to this, my my love for certain styles of music and songwriting. And I'm so happy to bring on to the show someone who is responsible for some of the earliest folk music that I listened to and kind of really sort of got the gears in motion for me in terms of my writing. Um, I know him through his music, but by no means that's not everything he's done. But welcome to the show, Tom Bliss. Thank you for coming Hello. on. Hello. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. Yes, Good. I'm thoroughly enjoying myself. Um, being being uh, very self-indulgent in Alderney in the Channel Islands at the moment, which very is this nice. island here behind me. Very nice, very nice. Is that where you're based now, is it, over there? Or... Uh, well, increasingly so, yes. We can work from here. Um, we couldn't get over at all last year because of the pandemic. Mm. We've spent a lot longer here. We can't move here full time for all kinds of reasons, mm. although it's really home. Um, we've still got commitments in Leeds that we can't abandon, but uh, we're experimenting with longer visits and uh, we'll probably be spending an increasing amount of time here, cool. or at least a, a substantial amount of time here, because it's just too lovely. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Yeah, somewhere completely different, isn't it? To, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, cool. Well, we'll, we'll kick start off. Um, the best thing to do, really, is if we if we kind of... I'll let you do a little bit of an intro um, for anyone who's not familiar with you and what you've done. Again, I've introduced the fact that you're a musician, songwriter. Just kind of give us... A, a, a bit of a background of, of what you've done in the past in a nutshell to kick us off. Okay, well, they, they say um, careers are bell-shaped. So my career started off uh, school. I was always a songwriter. I started writing songs in the early days of folk music and even played some folk clubs back then. Um, but then I went off to Leeds Polytechnic to study as a landscape architect um, and did that for a little while after I qualified, uh, but was then seduced by, by punk and new wave and went off to try and do that for a living um, and, and infamously got signed up by Pete Waterman before either of us were famous. Um, wow. Only it never came to anything. There's a very long story about why that, that um, didn't work. Okay. Probably I wasn't good enough after all. <laughs> Rick Astley got my gig. Oh, um, no. I think he was very good. Um, and then I, I um, decided to, to leave landscape architecture and retrain in television. So I spent most of my life working as a scriptwriter, producer, director in TV, doing documentaries and a lot of corporate work, which involves working across a whole range of genres. You have to be able to pick anything up that the client wants using all sorts of different styles, mm -hmm. um, but using a visual narrative. But obviously 
Um, and television is actually um, an audio narrative, first and foremost. Mm. Film is a visual uh, medium, but television is an audio medium with pictures pasted over the top. Yeah. Um, so, you you know, it's a lot closer to radio, and I've done a bit of radio too. So I did that um, for most of my career. And then around about the time I met uh, the famous Tom Napper, who I'm sure will crop up a lot in this, yes. in this podcast. Um, although Tom and I didn't know each other, but I was playing with a band called Slide and, and starting to write songs that really seemed to touch people in a way. I'd gone back to the folky style, mm. which I had not really played with at all. And um, what with one thing and another, it just seemed like an opportunity to, to give it a go, finally, a mm. second attempt at being a professional musician. So we started playing together and it clicked. He lived only a mile down the road. Um, we were very compatible and I was the writer. He didn't really write much, wrote a few tunes okay. and one, at least one very funny song. Um, and he could write, but he didn't particularly want to, but he had a huge range of traditional material and he was really expert. So he was my bellwether. He was the quality control, he called it. Okay. He'd say that song will do, that song won't. <laughs> um, and after a while, I realised actually some of the songs that Tom didn't really enjoy playing were going to be quite popular and I needed to earn a bit more money so I started doing solo gigs in between the tours mm -hmm. with Tom um, and produced a few solo albums which Tom played on so it all got a bit muddled up yeah. um, and that went on until the end of uh, 2010 so the 10 years the first the noughties really we were, yeah. we were doing that up and down the country all the time uh, 200 250 gigs a year wow. Um, but not really abroad. And I think if we'd gone abroad, we might have been able to carry on. But um, we wanted to move it on up to another level, but the folk clubs were starting yeah. to get a bit old and tired. Okay. Um, so we made a kind of joint decision. Also, Tom decided to get married to uh, an old girlfriend and move to Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we tried to keep it going a bit after that. But in, in the end, I decided to, get, to, to give up the music. Um, we both did, really, uh, the touring anyway. Mm. And um, I went back to university and did a master's in my original qualification uh, of landscape architecture wow. and was asked to join the staff almost immediately. And so I still do that. I teach... Um, landscape architecture and urban design um, at Leeds Beckett University and on the and that's all around climate change and sustainability which I've been passionate about for a very long time oh. I've always been an environmentalist in inverted commas yeah. Um, yeah. in various ways and then for four and a half five years I also worked at the other university in Leeds um, with a team of uh, uh, like a research uh, charity headed up by Piers Forster, who's the on the Committee for Climate Change, is one of the senior climate scientists in the world, probably. Marvellous wow. chap. Um, IPCC lead author and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so I got very into the science of trees, carbon, and all that. Now, you, you're probably thinking, where is the common thread to all that? And there <laughs> is a common thread. It's got two things, narrative and narrative in landscapes. Um, and those are the two things which hold everything I do together. They're my passions, stories and, and places. That was it. We, we had a chat um, when we first discussed doing this and you, you said a lovely thing that storytelling is your thing. And that's, that's really what's fed through, um, yeah. which is really what holds all the relevance to this podcast, because this is really where I started it, is, is to yeah. do with storytelling and delving into the, the stories behind other stories, stories of other people um and it's what really pulled me towards your music so to fill everyone in because me and tom have chatted about this we know where the link comes in and everything so just to fill everyone in it was back in sort of 2007 um tom napper who tom 
plays with um, or played with is um, a family member of my mother-in-law. So we went to see them live when they did a local gig. And it was quite early on with me discovering folk music for myself through the likes of Seth Lakeman and Show of Hands, particularly down here. And I think in that time, because I was getting so immersed in it, when we came to see you, your songs really did connect with me. And I had no idea why, really. And I think looking back on it, it is the fact that I'm drawn to anything that tells a story. So going, obviously, starting with the music side and that, um, in general, what has fed your creativity in terms of songwriting? Is there particular things that really do you, you are drawn to, to a particular kind of stories, or does it come from um, Well, I, I mean, you just mentioned Show of Hands, and I have to give them uh, credit, really, for uh, a very big nudge in the right direction. Um, I, I was... I'd started going back and playing folk music again, just going on to sessions, you know, Irish mm. sessions in Audley, near Leeds, where I, where I live when I'm not here in Audley. Um, and uh, I, I fell in in step with with the chap who runs the Otley Folk Club and Folk Festival, Steve Fairholm, who introduced me to Show of Hands literally. Okay. Um, they used to stay at his place and said, you must come and see this band. And I immediately went, hang on, I, I get this, because it was the kind of narratives that I really enjoyed. So as a documentary maker and also somebody who's written a certain amount of fiction, um, I'm I'm really interested in true stories because mm -hmm. um, I think truth is stranger than fiction. And I studied it in some depth as a scriptwriter. Uh, uh, memorably, I was asked to go on um, the Robert McKee course on story. I don't know if you've come across Robert McKee. wrote a wonderful book called Story. And he does these amazing three-day seminars, um, which everybody and anybody, a lot of, you know, John Cleese, all kinds of okay. um, great, great filmmakers have been on all recognize him as being you know the absolute guru and I was going to write a, uh, a well I was going to make a documentary about Sark actually um, okay. and a couple of people friends of mine here were in in television and had the right contacts and they said no we'd like to make a feature film and I went oh okay and they said we'd like you to write it and I went mm, that's a bit of a big ask never tried to write a whole feature film yeah. and they said well to help you you should go on Robert's course so I did. I went and stayed with them in Putney and went on this thing. And it was it was first of all, I came back the first day and said it was like being on a long haul flight. He won't let you speak. You just listen. He basically recites his book over three days. Right. It's extraordinary what he comes up with, how story works, why it works. And he gives all these amazing examples and it is absolutely seminal. Mm. I can't recommend it highly enough. He's still doing them. Okay. Um, but then after the second day, I said, yeah, it's definitely like a long haul flight, but something else is happening and I can't work out what it is. And then the end of the, uh, the third day, I came back, said, no, it's not about being on a long haul flight. It's like being present at the birth of your first child. Wait, okay. it's not. It's like being on at the presence of your first child on a long haul flight. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it was. It okay. was it, it was just a life-changing experience. Cool. And um, so that had all happened beforehand. In fact, the film was never made. Uh, I never even finished writing it. Various other things got in the way, as is the yeah, state of things. Yeah. But I turned that, so that story into a song, The Silver Load of Sark, which uh -huh. is the title track um, of the, uh, the album behind you there, The Silver Load there. And that was the catalyst. I first performed that to a small group of friends at a party after a show of hands gig here in Alderney, okay. uh, accompanied or assisted by Steve Knightley. Uh, that wow. was the first time I did it. And from that, 
came, um, uh, I went back to Leeds and I started putting together a band. And then, and I realised that my songs um, would, would, could, you could compress a whole movie script into uh, four verses, um, but you had to, every word would count. And it's, mm. it's that poetry, the ability to make sure that every little bit of the narrative is doing both the storytelling yeah. and the scene setting. So the, the context, the landscape, the poetry, if you like, in that is important. And very often, you know, there has to be a payoff at the end. Mm. Um, Either it's humorous or it's some kind of key. Uh, it would it would be called the obligatory scene in in movies. Yeah. You have the inciting incident at the beginning and the obligatory scene, and nearly all narratives have this. And so the obligatory scene is often just a single word in a folk song, um, which is why I decided to to perform in folk. Um, clubs right. and folk, folk settings because they're quiet enough for people to really pay attention because okay. if you miss that one word or that one phrase mm. the whole thing's gone yeah was it was it a conscious decision to then write folk music or is that something that just happened from from well i i yeah i'd always i well, i mean that, that's that's a terminological inexactitude you can't write for folk music by definition no. according to the, the sort of dictionary definition of folk music and of course it, it all got blurred uh, and we can blame various americans and some english people as well for yeah. that um but if you're talking about traditional storytelling and songs based around that um then you can't you can't create those all you can do is adapt and and learn from them and, and build on them um but i was a songwriter i've always liked writing music i wrote music for television i've written songs in all kinds of genres um and i like creating so the trick was to use that show of hands approach if you like and write uh, new songs in a traditional style that would yeah. sit quite happily alongside traditional material um and that was the challenge really was and that's where tom was so useful because he would he would say whether i was moving too far away from okay. that, that feel um i remember when when i started off when when tom and i were first uh, either before i met tom or soon after i met him i was chatting to i think it was pete Coe, a fantastic uh, performer and writer and player and just a magnificent man all around and he's he said you can you can make a living in the folk clubs but you have to work incredibly hard and you have to be able to play them all pretty much yeah. um, and for a songwriter that was a challenge because there's a lot of folk clubs that aren't interested in new material they only want the traditional stuff okay um, now a few of those relented because tom was in the band and they wanted him so they put up with me um, <laughs> nearly all of them booked us back which was great yeah and some of them quite a lot of them even booked me on my own later on and even the ones who held out like two or three just were not interested right. because I was writing new material and they in the end not some of the big ones didn't because we weren't famous enough yeah um but all the small ones I'd been secretly poking away at for all those 10 years they all booked us in the end oh. and, and and were quite happy with with my interpretation I think because uh, as you saw when you came to the gig the, the song was not the only bit. Uh, no. Tom's a fantastic raconteur. Mm. I mean, really funny, really engaging, lots of really interesting stuff. Mm. And because he would do often quite lengthy introductions to just tunes, yeah. uh, just tune sets, he'd have great you know, jokes and things. Yeah. And that allowed me to do the same thing. So uh, uh, a Napa Bliss gig was as much storytelling as it was music. I mean, yeah. if you actually cut up the, 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 you know, the duration of the, of the gig, Mm. There was almost as much talking as there was playing. Yeah, and that's the first time I think your gig was probably the first time I had really seen that. I'd seen 
Seth Lakeman possibly once before that live. Um, he didn't really, he didn't do a lot of, of sort of explaining in between his songs. So if you felt, you really felt like you were part of the, um, it's just part of the environment when you're at, when we're at one of your gigs yeah. because it's quite intimate and yeah. you really get a feel for it. it's what i i like um i've got tickets to see steve knightley on his solo tour which kept being put back and i know he does that where yeah. He, yeah. he backs up all of his songs with the, the meanings behind them yeah. um it's yeah so it's, it's a wonderful thing it's, uh, yeah bef- before we get into there's a few particular songs that i picked yeah. out that i i absolutely love of yours that i want to yeah. kind of delve in behind at some point but as a musician, multi-instrumentalist, to say the least, yourself, um, I can just about play the guitar. I would absolutely love to break outside of that, but I think I'm, I'm past the point in no return with that now. Just just give an mm-hmm. overview of what it is that you, you know, the instruments you play and at what stage of your life that you picked those up and decided to kind of run with them. Okay, well, the first was, I think, the piano. Um, I'm, I'm told that I was playing the piano like this above my head when I was two. Wow. Uh, and and picking out a tune with one finger and playing two or two note chords under it. Wow. You know. Okay. Um I, I can remember doing that, but we have a family violin. Uh, it's one eighth size. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's half the size of a quarter size if anybody's seen that's absolutely tiny little thing. Yeah. And it was sourced or given to the family by Clara Schumann, who was uh, the tutor of one of my great, great aunts. Yes, great, great aunts, um, who, was, who went to study towards the end of her life, uh, Clara's life. Uh, and it came back for little Faye, who was my mother's aunt or first cousin once removed, I think. And then it's passed down the family. And um, my niece uh, and, and nephew both played it and went on to become really superb musicians. I mean, real sort of concert soloist standard. Wow. Neither doing that now, but um, Catherine went on to play in, in a, a quartet, I think, that went on top of the pops and, and backed uh, Elton John and Robbie Williams. Wow. Like so this little violin is very important. So I started on that when I was three. Um, and because I'm, nobody ever said I could hold it this way around, uh, that way if you're looking at it, yeah. um, uh, even though I'm left-handed, I, I played the way that everybody does. And uh, I think this probably had an impact on, on how I went on to play. So when I fen- eventually picked up, I then played the piano as well through my um, early school career, but I always wanted a guitar. And in the end, I hit on a good ploy, has told my parents I would give up the violin unless I was allowed to have a guitar. Okay. <laughs> but I naturally picked it up the same way round. Sure. Um, and I think this whole, I don't know if you know about left-handed, right-handed music. It's an excellent book uh, by a guy called Todd Taylor. He was in okay. the band Advertising. Look it up if you can find it, um, which I could talk about for a couple of hours. <laughs> off. Um, and so I think that I like a certain type of, of musical approach. Uh, so I then went on, uh, for a long time, I couldn't fathom the mandolin because I just picked up other people's yeah and of course the fingering's just the same as the violin so I knew that okay and the spectrum bit is just the same the whole way you hold it's the same as guitar but I couldn't do it I thought this is ridiculous I tried loads of times and and just always put it down again mm-hmm. and then one day I thought right I'm just going to buy one right. I went to a shop bought one brought it home and within an hour I was playing it <laughs> without any problems at all it just needed that yeah 
So then that led to the whole of the mandolin family because they're all the same, basically. So I've got mandolin, mandola, octave mandolin, mandocello, and a manda bass is just an acoustic bass guitar, basically. It's just yeah. a different shaped body, but there's no difference. Right. Um, just tuned in fourths, unlike the others, which are tuned in fifths, same as a violin. I mean, they, they match the, the cellos and the mandolins match each other. Okay. Um, or, you know, it's actually the mandola and the viola are the parents. The mandola predates the viola. Okay. Uh, so mandolin and violin and so on down to okay. double bass. And, uh, bass. Um, explain all that to you if you let him. Yeah. Who is He's a great mandolin player, an old friend of mine, you know, Captain Grayley's mandolin, all that sort of stuff. Okay. Um, so, and I, I played the flute at school, and so I went on and I played the whistle mostly. I don't play the flute much. Um, I've only got an Irish unkeyed one, which is devilishly difficult to play, and I don't play it enough to, to you know, have to work at it. My ambush is gone. Um, and then various other, anything really that's got a neck and frets, um, they're all the same, really. Just once you've started using different guitar tunings yeah. and gone between the guitar and the mandolin, there's, you just play whatever you need to do. You can take a little while to get into it. So that's yeah. easy enough. And then because um, I had a five string fiddle uh, for a while, which I was playing when I first started working with Tom. So that's like both a man, man uh, sorry, a viola and a violin in one instrument, five mm -hmm. strings. Yeah. Um, but it was converted from a four string and very difficult. And I got a frozen shoulder. I couldn't right. reach to play it. Um, so I, I sold it. And funny enough, I've just seen it on, on the internet. I sold it to somebody called Tanya Opland, who still plays it. She's based in Alaska. Um, oh. And by her, her husband, Mike Freeman. And this picture of has popped up on my feed only today or yesterday, <laughs> uh -huh. playing this wonderful instrument. But I replaced it with something that didn't involve holding my hand up here because it was 18 months I couldn't play at all. Yeah. Um, with So I got a, a concertina, a duet concertina, which you can play really rich chords on. Mm -hmm. there's three totally different types of concertina you can be a virtuoso on one and you can't begin to play the other two they look okay. the same Interesting. and then even within the one i play the duet there are three completely different systems so you can be a virtuoso on the one i play the mccann system and the other two systems although they're all duet concertinas completely impossible to play um <laughs> and, the, and and also piano accordion because obviously i can play keyboards and so on so that's about it i think a few other things harmonica I play a bit of harmonica and of course now i've become a drummer Oh, wow. Well, that's okay. Just to add to it. Gee, yeah. wow, that is very, very impressive. Well, a percussionist, know. I should say. Uh, I have a miniature kit, which okay. I play with my, my current band, The Lost Larks. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. It's, it's great. It's great to know, actually, that you're still into it. I know um, when we yeah. just discussed it, you know. We'll come on to that at the end. That's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do have a game. Brilliant. Okay. Next, yeah. We'll cool. definitely touch on that at the end. Awesome. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, just just a few of your songs um, that have always stuck with me. I'd quite happily put these two albums on at any point and let, let them run, but I do gravitate to certain ones. So I am I'm quite a fan of history. So sort of any folk songs out there that have some kind of historical narrative to it will always get my attention. Campbell the Rover, Raven Queen, Newry Highwayman, and Flotsam and Jetsam. Okay, well, two of, two of those are traditional. So Campbell the Rover is a traditional song. Um, and it's 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 one of those sort of um, slightly humorous. Now, whether it's traditional or whether it's actually a music hall song, um, there's, with the Irish tradition, these things get a bit muddled up because a lot of people wrote songs, you know, to, to perform, perform in the vaudeville song. But um, the way that we, that Tom sings that one and, and the way that we do it is very much in that kind of quite aggressive story yeah. style. 
Yeah. Um, and uh, the other one, sorry, so Flotsam and Jetsam is mine. What were the other two, the other three? I've forgotten now. Ra Raven uh, Queen. A Raven Queen, yeah. yeah. So Raven Queen is mine, yeah. Um, so what was the other, the fourth one was, the other traditional one was... New, New High, High, oh, New High, High Sarah. Sarah. <laughs> Yeah, now that's, that's another one. That's another traditional one. Mm. Again, it has a similar thing. Yeah. Uh, again, Irish. Um, I can't remember where I heard it. Um, but there was something about the way that it, it fell in. I, I think I, I started doing it because it seemed to fit with the way that Tom played yeah. his traditional yeah. songs. Yeah. Um, and we, we it worked really well. We always finished the, the set with it as an encore. Now, the other two, Raven Queen. Now, that's an interesting challenge. A friend, uh, a person, I can't remember even who it was, um, somebody, uh, told me the story about Henrietta Maria and how she had landed at Bridlington and under fire from mm. um, uh, Cromwell's troops and had hid under this bridge at Boynton, which is on the back road between Leeds and uh, Bridlington that I often used to drive along okay. um, with the family because we used to go up to, to Bridlington and Filey and places like that. Yeah. And so the next time I was there, I went and had a look at this bridge and thought, right, there's this place where she'd stayed for three, three days and nights. Yeah. Um, and by the time she got to York to meet up with Charles, he was already arrested and in chains. And obviously yeah. we all know what happened to him. Yeah. Um, so uh, I just, again, it was that challenge. Can I tell a story? Can I, can I get this into a, a narrative? Um, and Flotsam and Jetsam, that was a really difficult one. In some ways, that's the, that's the song I'm most proud of, okay. technically, because it's really long and difficult to hold. Yeah. Um, an audience's attention it's a tricky guitar part as well yeah. um and i want it and, and that's one that has a long introduction because there was about three quarters of the story i couldn't fit even into a right six seven verse song is it mad even Something eight like verses it's a long time it and it's it has a solo in the middle to make it seem shorter because <laughs> if you break it up and put some music in, okay. the audience get a bit bored of your voice you know, then you can go <laughs> up with another four or five verses cool. um uh, so yeah, that's the story, obviously, of Sir Cloudsley Shovel being being wrecked on the Sillies. Mm. Um, but just you know, I, I mentioned earlier on about how the Silver Load is a movie condensed into a song. That the mm. reverse happened with a historical narrative. After I finished playing with Tom and I finished my masters, I wasn't quite sure what to do. I'd been asked to do some teaching, but at that stage it was fairly early on, and there wasn't an awful lot going on. So um, out of the blue, I got an email from a guy called um, Doug Ford in Jersey. And uh, he was head then head of the Heritage Museum, uh, Maritime Museum, all the museums, actually. Mm. Uh, you know, he was education officer. And he said, could you write a, a show, an opera? And I went, well, I've got a bit of time. Yeah. Um, what do you mean? He said, well, you know your song, The Merry Bells of Hellier? Okay. And I said, yes. He said, well, could you expand that into a whole two hour show? And I went, uh, well, yes, I could, but I really, you know, it takes so much time. I couldn't commit. I need to be getting a bit more work. And he said, oh, we'll pay you. Okay. I said, oh, well, yeah, but it's still going to be quite, yeah. I don't know, it's going to take me months. It's going to take me six months or four months or something. He said, oh, yeah, we'll pay you. So they named a figure and I went, all right. So that was, um, so the story of the Merry Bells of Hellier was actually inspired by a painting by Francis Copley, which is the National Gallery, and it's called The Death of Major Pearson. Right. And it shows Major Pearson expiring in St. Hellier um, at the Battle of St. Hellier, which is 1781, January the 4th, 
Um, and it's the last land battle that took place between England and France and the, the last um, battle on English soil, on British, sorry, British soil, not actually England. Uh, the Channel Islands are four independent nations, um, Jersey, Guernsey, Albany and Sark, you know, long <laughs> complicated, talk about that for a couple of hours. Um, but he wanted that, so, so I created a whole narrative. He was an expert on the cod trade, this is Doug, uh, had written a book about the Gaspé cure, which is the, the kind of drying of the cod that they did in Gaspé, which is on Newfoundland, on the, the peninsula between the St. Oh, yeah. Lawrence River and the sea, um, because there were Jerseymen there. It is now pretty much established that the very first people to find the United States, as it now is, were from Jersey, okay. before St. Brendan. Brendan. Um, but they'd been going across there for centuries, uh, millennia possibly. Yeah. And um, there was a, like a big Jersey colony in Gaspé. So the narrative is this young lad from Jersey winds up going over there. And because he's a French speaker, when he's shipwrecked there, he's rescued by some Acadians who are uh, anti-French okay. um, uh, and, and anti-British because the way they've been so little, you know, little independent lot. Right. So he winds up making friends with this girl. But then when the French are recruiting in Gaspé and in Newfoundland for the raid on Jersey, which yeah. it happened, it's all historically accurate. Yeah. Um, then he winds up going back to Jersey in disguise as a Frenchman on a French boat. So he's then yeah. got to get ashore and warn his pals that they're, you know, they're landing before. Okay. So in, in all of the songs are from the, all the music is from the period. I didn't make up any tunes at all. I chose wow. deliberately not to do that. This is all traditional material. Um, some songs are as they were at the time. Others mm. I have rewritten. Um, and there's certainly that narrative. As cast of 25, I think they wanted parts for various different people. But there you are. That's an example of a little narrative that's four verses long. Yeah. In, turned into a two-hour show with cannons, wow. costumes, sunsets, <laughs> everything. That's amazing. That's never been performed either, but it's another different story. Oh, it's, no. It's available like for somebody if they do want to do it. Wow. No, that'd be, and, and what would that feel like when that actually, you know, if that was to be performed? Yeah, it, you know? it was great fun to do, actually. And I think probably, well, as far as I can make out, they had somebody in mind who was going to direct it. I didn't feel I could direct it. I, I'm a okay. television director, not a theatre director. And there comes a point when you have, when you've written something, you need to hand it over to the director and the actors to, to play around with it and, and to, you know, so even though I'd done it as far as I could go, mm. um, there's some business and stuff, as they call it in the trade, you know, the, the actors, how they're moving around each other and all that kind of stuff. Right. It's pointless for the, for the writer to do that. It needs to happen in workshopping kind of in the early rehearsals. Sure. Yeah. Um, and this guy, I think, was then, he then left the island and I don't think they could find anybody else who had the necessary uh, experience to take on such a big project. Okay. Um, so they paid, I'm pleased to say, <laughs> and after a couple of years, the copyright reverted to me and I still haven't decided what to do with it. I'd love oh, to make okay. it into a movie, but um, someday I might. Stay tuned, stay tuned. Mm. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad that one, one thing that you touched on, which you, you kind of brought up going through those songs actually um, earlier on was, was trying to condense a story, a narrative into a song. Now, mm. I, I would have one of my bucket list items one day is to be able to to write a folk song you know I, I'm, I'm very much inspired by that kind of music about history and mm. I've tried and that pretty much that is my sticking point even as a as an author 
I've tried to write short stories, can't do it. I just can't seem to to condense. I'm I'm, I'm too fluffy. Um, so you know that little bit of advice, you know, that probably stick with me actually. You know, well, I think probably it helped that I that I'm a I'm a documentary maker, so mm. I'm used to editing. I mean, I'm an editor. You know, I, I'm used to, so I'm still making films um, mm. for not much money, but I, I'm, I'm making them again um, for an organisation called Woodland TV, um, who, who just bung me a bit of money. And I quite enjoy doing that sort of thing. But I have a, I have a various ways I make films, but I make them on the hip. So I will, I will pick a topic mm. or be given a topic and then go out and I will interview people which is the sort of old fashioned way of doing it in the old days, because filming was so expensive. You went and interviewed people first yeah. and you did it on, on tape um, because you couldn't afford a camera. And then you edited what they said and you went back with the camera and you tried to get the same responses from them, but only okay. the bits you needed, not all right. the rambly stuff you didn't use. Okay. Um, and then, in fact, there, there was a technique where you could you could even go and make a documentary, a short, certainly a short one, where you use the original tape, the original audio recording. And because you got close-ups of the person who was talking at the appropriate moments, yeah. the audience never realised that you'd never got a shot of them actually talking. There's no lip sync. Um, and that's a technique I've used. I still use that today. So that's I'm very used to taking large amounts of um, other people's words yeah. and using them to create a story so I'm I'm script writing with other people's voices and I do a lot of that I've done so much of it that it comes second nature to me I mean I've made thousands over yeah. thousands of films um over my lifetime and I think that when you're start sitting down to start creating something mm. what I'm I what I don't know I have written a book and you know a novel mm. um right at the beginning of my writing career when I just after I left um, college and it, it was rubbish. And I had another go at it a few years later. And it wasn't any better. And I'm in awe of people who write books. I've just been rereading um, Kate Atkinson's A God in Ruins, which is okay. an astonishing book. It's it's second of a pair. The other one's called Life After Life, about bro brother and sister. Right. Um, and she's just an extraordinary novelist. And to 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 we it's not told in um it's not picaresque it's not it's not told in, in a narrative uh, mm -hmm. in linear order right. it, it jumps around in time um and it has multiple narr narrators and okay. it somehow manages still to hold together as extraordinary weave yeah um, of, of, of uh of stories and uh, she even plays around with time and alternative um sort of realities and alternative okay. life, lives as well. I would recommend those two books. I haven't read Time Time After Time, Life After Life yet. Um, right. but I'm going to wait. I need to, because I've read the other one twice. I've just finished reading it. It's such a powerful book. I need to let it go away. Yeah. And I'll come back to it um, some other time. But yes, I, I'm in awe of people who can do that. But going back to the songwriting, um, mm. have you come across my little booklet on, on narrative songwriting? No, I don't think I have. Okay, well, there I can help you because I wrote one. Cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I did these, um, I used to do uh, workshops on songwriting at festivals. Tom was always in demand as a, as a workshop leader. Mm. Absolutely brilliant. Um, how to play the banjo, how to play the mandolin, right. um, or manner of other things, actually, a whole range of stuff that he, and he's very, he's a brilliant teacher. Yeah. Um, everybody absolutely loves it and he doesn't matter how good or bad they are I mean some really good people will go along to his yeah. his workshops and come away having learned something um, but what what could I do so I, I thought well I can I can do something on songwriting 
Um, we did workshops together as well, okay. um, but I specialised in in workshops on how how to play around with traditional stories. So how to how to adapt traditional songs, okay, um, which is quite interesting. Um, once did one with um, two people, uh, Mary Humphreys and Anna Harter, who were great traditional musicians and friends of mine, and they had they had made a song out of traditional sources, but would still be called a traditional song, right. and I had been dissatisfied with that from a storytelling perspective because I'm a storyteller yeah. so I had made a new song it's called Rue um, and uh, mine mine I, I would call it traditional arranged but I've definitely yeah. played with it I've gone to a deeper level than they would ever consider doing they, they don't yeah. need to do that they're presenting yeah. fragments of the song in a coherent way which is what traditional musicians do it's yeah. all it's muddled up and reworked yeah. you know there's, there's no perfect version of it um there's just older versions or what might be older versions where something that's been written is is, is had that discipline applied to it and mm. we used to do workshops together talking about how okay. our different approaches are interesting anyway so um a news a magazine called living, living tradition asked me if i could write all that up um into a into a, a sort of series of articles Right. Uh, which was then, then serialized in the Living Tradition magazine over a, a number of weeks. And I think it's still downloadable from there, but it's on, there's a link from my website, tombliss.co.uk. Okay. Um, some videos there, including some of the more recent stuff I've been doing, which is not really folk, although it's played on folky instruments. Um, we'll talk about that another time. Um, but if you, if you read that, there's a lot about narrative songs okay. and about tradition and about the approach to melodies, um, and obviously it's better if you came to the workshops, but mm. people have read them and said, it. and there's some other links to some other uh, similar work that I, I, I admire by other people as well in that document. I will, I think. I will hunt that out. I will, I've always had these ideas floating around my head and I think certain stories have always appealed to me from a certain time and mm. it's coming through shipwreck stories, for example, mm. don't know, always strike a chord with me. Um, I've, I've, used the the sinking of the clarendon on the um uh on the coast of the isle of Wight. i've used that in one of my short stories and short stories before um particularly drawn to obviously like i've said flotsam and jetsam um yeah of yours visited the mary rose museum again after you know 20 years or so uh, since yeah. i last saw the wreck as a kid i went there this weekend and it's just kind of i don't know i mean all of things like that because it's such a story to it and it's yeah. such a tragic end to these things you know and yeah yeah so it's a very shocking thing a shipwreck isn't it it's mm. it, one is you know you're kind of drawn to the to the horror of it this big mm. safe thing yeah. um they look so alien when when you see them on the rocks and i have yeah. seen ships wrecked um but yeah so there's there's another example there of uh, another workshop actually came out of a workshop um sidmouth uh, one year sidmouth festival I was asked to do um, a series of narrative workshops in the middle of the night. Um, okay. It was very odd. Uh, had to be there at half past seven in the right. morning, um, which, of course, most musicians are still fast asleep. <laughs> yeah. um, and we were given the topic of the wreck of the Napoli, which is on Bransk, was on Branscombe Beach, just okay. next door. Yeah. Yeah, very clearly from, mm. from Sydney. And um, on the first day, I'm doing one of the song introductions now. It, I shall, it'd probably come out verbatim even after 10 years. Um, <laughs> and we were given um, a, a, a load of material from by ladies from Branscombe from the Oral History Society. And they came with a load of uh, typescript interviews, which had been done on the night 
with the, the looters, as for want of a better term. Yeah. And um, we, we, we did, we did I think it was an hour every morning for five mornings. And at the end of it, this, this lad called Richard Toller presented, you know, everybody got up and sang the song at the end. I didn't actually write one myself. I just sort of sat back and watched them doing it. <laughs> um, and Richard wrote a song like, I mean, it's a lovely melody. It's his melody. Um, but there are a few little things that I, I couldn't resist tweaking. Um, and I hummed and hard for a long time. I thought, no, I should just present it. It's his work, you know. Yeah. But he was a nice guy. And I said, do you mind if I give it a little bit of a tweak here and there? Um, because I wanted to, to put it on the album. And I just yeah. I needed to be up to a certain intensity of songwriting, of storytelling. Yeah. And um, the basic idea was definitely his. So it, it's, on, it's on The Whisper, this one. Mm -hmm. cool. uh, it's called Branscombe Bay and it's done unaccompanied so there's no there's no oh no no tell a lie no it's the mighty Montague that's it there's there's at least two or even three shipwreck songs in all my albums the mighty Montague is about the wreck of the Montague on Lundy Island ah. that's a funny one that I like that one yeah, yeah. yeah. I, like I, I could almost do that for you now that's about <laughs> a bit relation of a relation uh, that's another long story so um Branscombe Bay was was he had this idea of somebody tossing a a, a coin and um it, because he turned out that some of the lads had found a motorbike and there was a dispute about um who'd got the motorbike because somebody had found it first and taken the keys out of the tank right. and they'd gone away to get some help to bring this motorbike up up the beach and when they got back there was some other people with it and they said ah, i've got the key <laughs> and so they tossed a coin for it and uh, that's true and he won and and read and and richard had used this as a narrative of the penny spinning uh and uh, of, of having gone to a race so it's, it's almost like i think he was a show i suspect he was a show of hands uh, fan there's a little bit of a of a a, a, a homage shall we say to okay. the galway farmer yeah oh okay yeah uh, or at least it makes me think of that so yeah. so there was an example of, of a true story a shipwreck story being made into this wonderful little bit and there's times when i can't remember if it was his idea or mine now i'll give him the credit where the the, the motorbike is a horse and the horse is a motorbike uh, you know the, right. the these two steeds yeah. these stallions yeah. um become almost interchangeable because the horse that he put the money on and lost originally mm. um was called Branscombe Bay and it turned out that the old woman who'd given him the tip wasn't talking about the horse she was saying <laughs> go down to the seaside there's a motorbike there <laughs> when you realize that at the end of the song you know oh. so uh, yeah, you should have a listen to that. That's I, I love this. Is probably the best album for song for narrative songwriting. Okay, I'll go back and I will re-listen to that. It's, uh, there's there's a couple more songs uh, just briefly I want to touch on of yours, yeah. which I think uh, correct me if I'm wrong as yeah. I'm saying this have have more of a personal to yourself personal sort of story behind them. First of all, the violin. Mm. I absolutely love that song. I think yeah, you, that, you played you played it at the first gig that I, I yeah. saw of yours and. Yeah, that, that's the one that started the whole thing going, really. So I had already written uh, The Silver Load then, um, but I was thinking, oh, what, what else can I do? And I'd read a book called um, Accordion Crimes by E. Annie Prow, who I, I think it's probably from a Guernsey because that's a Guernsey name. Um, but she wrote a very famous book called The Shipping News, which was made into a great movie with Judy Dench and various people. But this is, a, which is a lovely book, actually, very funny, but also very touching. Mm. But Accordion Crimes is very dark, and it's about an accordion, which is taken over to the United States, or to, to the Western Hemisphere. Um, 
by immigrants and i think it starts off as a as a, a no i think it starts off as a as a norwegian with a norwegian family but it's passed around yeah. different families and it moves through different traditions it's played different types of music yeah. played on it and everybody that that that, that plays this instrument comes to a sticky end it seems okay. um and it's it's quite hard work and i didn't really in fact i don't even finish reading it but i thought hmm who used to own my violin yeah. where's it come from yeah. could i create something so i just the only bits of information I knew for sure was that when I had it valued, um, it was made somewhere like Salzburg, somewhere okay. Austria, that, you know, yeah. in sort of 1930s. That was it, that was and then it has Paris in tiny letters on the bridge, oh, okay. um, which is actually a make of the bridge. Um, okay. But obviously French. So yeah. I thought, well, it's been in Strasbourg, it's been in Paris, and it's been in, in London where my dad bought it. Um, oh, I think my mum got it actually, but dad fitted better with the story. Um, and so that's three places. Where else could it have been? Well, I can probably I can probably make four verses up out of that. Um, and happily struck on a, on a, a nice tuning. I mean, that, that, the melody of that song is based on guitar tuning. Okay. Uh, has an unusual tuning which which happened to fall to the hand and and created this nice effect and the melody came from it and unfortunately because very few people understand that tuning um it's been covered a lot it's probably the only one of my songs that's entered the tradition in the in the technical sense okay. and that it's been, right. been played by so many people that it started to take on a life of its own okay. it's no longer my song Right. Um, but quite a lot of the versions are played in standard tuning and you can't do the crucial bass walk in standard tuning. You haven't got enough fingers to do it. Right. Um, and so people have changed the melody to get round that. And I think the song's the weaker for it because I like, that's what <laughs> I like. I've got the lyrics. Yeah. I love that guitar bit. It was just so lucky that <laughs> I happened to accidentally find it. Um, but yes, it, it's an immensely powerful song and it was a very difficult one to place. And in the end, I decided, certainly when I started doing solo gigs, I thought I'd do it first because it doesn't need much introduction. Hmm. And it just, people who hadn't come across me before just knock them back in their seats yeah. and then I could work on them for the rest of the evening. Yeah. Um, whereas if I saved it up to the end of the evening, if people might already walked out long before they heard it. <laughs> so... Uh, so it became, and in fact, I played it so often that it's the one song I dropped. And in fact, talk, talking about my new band, it's, yeah. I say it's a new band, been going for a long time, will be hardly ever meet for various reasons, but it's actually four different bands in one. Okay. So four singer-songwriters who normally could never coexist in a band. I had the bright idea of having each, each when one of us is singing, when I'm singing my song, it's my band and they're my, my backing band. Sure. And when Paddy's singing, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And we picked our best material, best five songs that we thought would fit. And we worked it up and that, and it works very well like that. Yeah. Um, all, all good singers, all great players. But Paddy, who I've known for years, is a fantastic, uh, really rock uh, songwriter, yeah. a very successful career in that, in that guise, was signed up by... Um, by Sire at the same time as the Rosillos and the Undertones. But oh, right, okay. Um, but Paddy had, even though we'd been playing together in a band and he'd known me all these years, he'd never heard the violin because uh, I just stopped doing it. Right. it. Never occurred to me. And it was only the last time we met, which is a few, a few months ago, we all happened to be in England at the same time. Mm. And I said, maybe we should do this one because I haven't played it for a long time. And he said, bloody hell, I've never <laughs> heard that before. So that shows, you know, even the song like that, I yeah. got, I wouldn't say I got bored with that, I just think, think it had run its course other sure. people belong to other people okay now that's fair yep. enough. 
yeah no I, I really i know i really do love that and i i just love the i think it's in the last verse where you bring it up to, up to date and then you yeah, really yeah, you yeah. hammer the message home that it was yours you know it's, yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah yeah and a, a bit more of a comical one um was silk and leather oh yeah yeah well i do i again, do like no, that, that one. it's a fun one yeah yeah I, I i like doing the comedy ones it's it's tricky to do comedy in song and i've I've got a few. So, so the uh, the mighty Montague. That that's a funny one. Mm. Um, I dare say Adair is a decent sort of chap, but he struggles to check his reckoning and never trouble study the map. It's a right uh, tongue twister. To do. <laughs> um, but yeah. So it's silk and leather. So again, I was scr scratching around. Um, I, I, I was. I found that audiences would buy into a song more if I could exhibit some personal connection. Mm which isn't always possible, but it, you know, usually there was something. And so Silk and Leather is the strap line for Bliss Tweed. So my family, my great, great grandfather beyond um, were, were cloth manufacturers in, in the West Country and shipping Norton. Okay. And um, I'd always thought they were capitalists and didn't really want a lot to do with them right. living in Leeds, you know, you yeah. keep quiet about things like that. Um, but then I found out he was a utopian socialist, you know, like, like Robert Owen and Titus Salt and all those, and he looked after his workers. So I, I thought having spent many years writing, you know, uh, corporate scripts yeah. and working advertising and things like that um I, I would write a a sort of jingle for dear old william bliss my great great grandfather and his tweed um and so silk and leather is the result and it, and it, it it picks up on a quite a humorous little story it does yeah. little incident which uh, which i've stuck in there there's that a nice photograph actually on on the internet um where judging by the fact that my mouth is shut like that and I'm playing the squeeze box and Tom is making a kind of face right. um uh, uh, doing sort of Les uh, um what's his name uh, Les Dawson, Les Dawson. Face. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and um it was one of our publicity shots and it's still around on the internet and I realized recently that I'm singing the word bum at that point my mouth <laughs> going, mm. and Tom's doing that face and it's captured it. Brilliant. We, we used to do it in churches and we never knew, quite knew whether we should apologize behind us <laughs> singing by the church oh. is, that, is that still part of the, the sort of family dynasty now or is, is that, that uh, no not really no 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 um, my sister uh, Anne still has um some when when the mill eventually it passed from the family hands because as the song relates dear old william uh, was so generous that he he gave lots of money away and after the mill burned down and the new one the, the famous mm. one that's there now was built he overspent and didn't then make enough money back um, so, in fact, this tweet is interesting. I'm pretty sure, I can't prove this, but I'd like to try, um, that the, the Stars and Stripes were made out of horse blankets. Okay, the very first Stars and Stripes was cobbled together in a hurry from right. three horse blankets. Right. And Bliss Tweed, the Bliss, the real money that the Bliss uh, factory came from horse blankets, blue horse blankets and blue serge uniforms. So the Union right. Army was clad in bliss tweed so <laughs> it's possible that the the blue in the stars and stripes was anyway wow. after the, the the mill was rebuilt it didn't yeah. make enough money so he left too much in order to honor the legacies they had to sell the mill so it passed to a family called fox who recently again closed it uh, sold it uh, again so um there's actually another funny little coincidence there. My middle name is Cordew, and it's now owned by a person called Cordew. Wow. How weird is that? That's... So 
yeah. the middle name, the family name goes back to Chipping Norton, the Bliss family and the Cordew family, two members of this family, no, two members of the Cordew family. So we're okay. really Cordew Bliss. That's, that's the family name for the okay. males only. Anyway, right. um, so that's it really, that, that there is cloth around. I've got various bits, but it's now luxury flats. And I think it's okay. where, you know, wow. David Cameron and people like that live. Aha, let's say that the better. So um, <laughs> let's, let's let's bring it a little bit up to date then. Talk about what your um, what you've been up to um, sort of since the ten years that you say you were um, you were yeah. you know, making this music with with Tom Napper and that. So yeah, bring it. Bring what's what's going on at the moment. You say you've got a a, a band that you um, yeah. It's only very occasional. I mean, I, after so after I stopped playing with Tom, we had another after my masters. We had another little go. We did a few more gigs the following year, but we realised it wasn't really viable because he was mm. coming down staying with me. We were rehearsing, then going on down doing the gigs. Then he was coming back to mine and then going back up to Scotland. Sure. And, it just wasn't really going to happen. I looked around for various other people to play with, did a few bits and pieces yeah. um, with other people, but nothing really felt, in, you know, Tom had spoiled it for everybody. It just worked so well, the way our voices yeah. blended. You know, we spent 10 years like like husband and husband, really, in the van together, and we almost never had any disagreement about anything. Wow. Um, it, was a, it was a great relationship, and I do miss him, actually, from that point of view, as well as, you know, the actual music. Mm. But I think we both had enough of the schlepping round. Um, you know, it was the traffic, really. I was getting fed up and the, my, my carbon yeah. tyre print and everything. Yeah. So, um, I, I, and, and really, I had to go cold turkey. So I, del- and I knew that if I went on accepting gigs as a solo artist, which I could easily have done, mm. then I'd never do anything else. I'd just go on yeah. doing little bits. It was either going at the full tilt, which I didn't want to do, mm. or it would stop altogether. So I stopped altogether. And really threw myself into into the climate work and and the environmental work, which had always been there. Mm. But now I had the qualifications and the job, if you like, to to do it. So I started doing all kinds of work in Leeds, decided to concentrate on city scale research, uh, particularly around urban food. So I started a number of organisations which I have been involved with until recently. So um, that's been the focus. It still involves storytelling. Mm-hmm. And it still involves landscapes, um, but just on a different scale. So, you know, and I've become, because of the whole problem, the pushback from the science. So I've become really interested in science narratives now. Okay. So the whole idea of the, of the scientific method is to stop the overarching desire of human beings to have a story arc. Now, I could talk about this for a long time. We haven't got time to go into it, but <laughs> the human paradigm, you know, the worldview yeah. is really important to the, to the development of the human intelligence. And if you go back to uh, the very early stages of human consciousness, as people start to ask questions, mm. they start to get answers that they can't resolve and you get cognitive dissonance. Yeah. You know, when, when things go wrong, don't turn out as you're expecting, the yeah. harvest fails or the berries aren't there or a child dies or something terrible mm. happens. And so you have this, this thing about the narrative being stronger in the human brain than the uh, search for truth. And it wasn't until the age of enlightenment that the scientific method caught up. And the whole point of the scientific method is to push back against that narrative. We still need it, but this is why people now will become anti-vaxxers or anti-mask or anti-climate or whatever, because they find a, a narrative that's stronger, that's easier to believe than the awkward, unfinished, changing, Um, often conflicting 
truths such as we know them or you know emerging yeah. truth and science is only emerging truth so i've become really fascinated by that because it started being a problem with the climate thing and then the pandemic came along and i saw exactly the same behaviors um exactly the same problems all teased out in the same way so if i was to write a book now it would be a textbook on hyperapophenia um which is this uh, human tendency to see uh, patterns in random places so okay. constellations jesus on the in a piece of burnt toast yeah, yeah. Cheese, you know all yeah. that that's called apophenia it's a natural thing it's what we do it's how we recognize our way back to the cave yeah. uh, the landmarks and so on seeing patterns and and the, the whole creation of narrative comes back to apophenia um but in certain cases, it goes beyond into a process called hyperapophenia when people start seeing, uh, making random connections and believing them to be okay. more truthful, more connected than they actually are. Okay. And that then becomes a problem. That's where you get the whole confusion and denial. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's that's where I'm at. So storytelling is absolutely the root of everything I'm yeah. thinking about at the moment. And uh, just to bring Bang up to date, I left my job with the climate team at the University of Leeds um, because I, they, I'd done what I'd set out to do and I mm. wanted them to spend my salary on another scientist, a specialist in exactly what, what we needed, which they have now done. And I was going to do something else at the university, but the pandemic happened. Uh -huh. And so I wound up being a full-time carer for, for our granddaughter because my son and daughter-in-law weren't able to do that and she, we couldn't we couldn't send her anywhere else because right. my daughter's vulnerable for various reasons so um we all we all they moved into my house and i wound, wound up looking after this marvelous little girl and that took up most of last year now she's starting school and um i need to think of something else to do so when i get back from alderney to leeds uh, I will so make some decisions about what to, I've got a few things I've got to tidy up. I've still got the teaching work, yeah. um, but I need to do something and I'm not quite sure what yet. Um, music probably won't be a big part of it. No. Um, but it is the the idea of just to go back to the band. Uh, yeah. So after not playing at all, really, I mean, not even picking up an instrument for year after year, yeah. um, then I was asked because this guy Paddy I mentioned before, um, Paddy Hogan, yeah. he um, he knew that I was secretly a, a closet percussionist, that oh. I really liked playing percussion, and he was launching a solo CD he'd done, uh, which is quite folky, lots okay. of lovely songs, really prompted by the death of his lovely brother Brian, who was another great friend of mine, um, and their their sort of holidays in Ireland, so it's very informed by the Irish tradition without actually being folk music. And um, so he asked me if I played percussion and, and two other guys that he also asked to play in that gig. One I'd been in bands with, Phil Cochran, fantastic guy, um, a really talented musician and songwriter, brilliant songwriter, and again, multi-instrumentalist. Um, and so it was great to play with him. And somebody I'd not, not met before called Dan Miller, who's again a multi-instrumentalist and a uh, bit younger than us, but rising star of the folk scene. Um, and the, the personalities just clicked uh, for that one-off gig. And we said, well, we've got to keep this going, but how we, we're going to fight over material because <laughs> we've all got the whole, you know, we've all yeah. got 20 worth of, of songs. Yeah. And then I came up with that idea of it being four bands in one. The problem is that I'm over here a lot and Den's wife works in Nairobi. So oh, he spends wow. a lot of time over there with his younger kids right. and a lot of time in England with his older kids. Right. Um, so, you know, the chances of the last lights we're standing are still pretty difficult. So, 
we're not doing a lot but it's just nice that we're, it's nice being in a band you know yeah because us musicians we don't have real friends we just got <laughs> people we're in a band with <laughs> and then you're mates with them until That's the band awesome. breaks up then you form a new band and you think mates they're your friends then you know so That's real the secret to it. That's the secret to it. So um, just be, just before we, we sort of wrap it up, if, they, if anyone wants to keep up with any of your work, you know, your music or anything mm. else, where can they find you? Where can, is your music still available or, you know, what's your yes, online yeah, presence? Yes, the music is available. Yeah, yeah, you'll find it all. I stopped chasing the, uh, the internet um, scalpers so that you can download my stuff from various places. I've made the money. I've still got some unsold CDs. But we sell them here in the house as the... We have guests in here. It's a, like a little Airbnb type thing that we come okay. to here. Um, so there's a little shop over there. Can't see it actually. Awesome. Um, but uh, and they do sell them in the shops here. But I think everybody's sold out, and I've stopped bothering to distribute okay. them. You can get them. I think you can get them online, but I haven't posted any out for years, so I don't suppose that's working anymore. Um, I've got a few boxes back in Leeds, but you can download them. Um, so that's tombliss.co.uk for everything musical. Everything else you can find me at herbal.tv. U R B A L. That's the opposite of Urban. If anybody, any planners in the in the audience, okay. Um, it's it's about the relationship of cities to their hinterland. I won't go into more okay. than that. But herbal.tv's got links to all of the other work that I do. It's actually much less than it was a couple of years ago because I'm currently withdrawing from that. I mean, set up a lot of organisations and mm. uh, rather overworked myself keeping them all going. Now we've got great teams in place and I'm just stepping back a bit and okay. letting things go on under either the same name or new names and things like that. Um, I'm not quite sure exactly how much involvement I'm going to have in all that, but it's a lot to do with urban food okay. and trees and parks and gardens and things like that and then there's the university work and all those various other wow. things so uh, yeah that's that, those two are the websites to, to remember tomblist.co.uk and herbal tv cool. well thank you again so much for your time it's been amazing to talk to you you know um, well, nice to talk to you too yeah thank, thanks for the memories thanks for the music you know as, as, as from me you know it's still yeah. it's, it's still those, those favorites i still go back to you know still draw inspiration well, so it's it's funny thing you know I, I I don't as I say I don't play but um I I have a um a couple of cousins um well, one particular cousin who's more like a brother to me and, and he he comes over here and overlaps with me for a week he's got two small boys he's my age but he married late um and they absolutely love my songs and so I'm persuaded to get out the old Echo Ranger that lives over here right. and and play them you know and so in fact. Uh, couple of weeks ago i was in this very room uh doing a micro gig oh. for two very exciting small boys oh, and i did the violin and i did uh, someone upstairs and uh what else oh boat to brew of course brew being oh that this is this map here yeah. this is alderney and there's an island there that's Baru. boat to brew is probably after the violin is my most successful song okay um and that's on um yeah, it's not. It's not. It's it's on Island Stories, but it's on the okay. Slide album. But it's not. Tom and I didn't didn't play that. Okay. Um, the band did. Um, but uh, yeah, that's 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 almost like a, a little love song. That one. I don't do okay. many what I'd call relationship songs. But I nicked the tune. I nicked the tune off uh, the band Iona, who are friends. Ah, okay. So, <laughs> yeah. so so yeah you still get to connect to it which is brilliant and oh absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. No, that's lovely but no thank you thank you yeah for, for your nice time to talk to you. and you mate and you and you know oh. all the best with everything you got going on yeah. and uh, thanks very much indeed no worries and to you. Cheers, bye now bye